Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I'd like to welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast, Cantor Ellen Dreskin. Cantor Dreskin travels the country as a scholar in residence for communities of all denominations, and she's taught for many years on the faculty of the URJ Summer Kalot, Havana Shira, and the URJ Kutz Camp Leadership Academy. Ordained by HUCJAR in 1986, Cantor Dreskin also teaches the URJ's online Intro to Judaism class and is a storyteller on the URJ podcast called Stories We Tell. Cantor Dreskin, Ellen, if I may, Please. thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I learned online that you're from Texas. I was then able to place your accent. I thought that's not only where the accent comes from, but also the charm and the personability. I still say y'all, y'all. all the time. Y'all is very useful. Y'all is very useful. Every language has y'all, yeah. except English. Well, we do, but we don't use it. You know what it is? Use you. guys. <laughs> you is actually plural. Thou is singular. And we dropped thou. I don't know why, because it's much more useful to say thou to one and you to two or more. We can pick that up as a, as a mission of ours, <laughs> or, we can just, or we can just agree to use y'all. <laughs> but there's also a Southern or a Texan musical sensibility, mm-hmm. and although it wouldn't be my instinct or my expectation, I wanted to find out if you have Texan or Southern musical influences in your life since you are a cantor. And music's your life, or a part of your life. I am a big fan of country music. Not the real twangy stuff, but uh-huh. the stuff that sounds a little bit more American pop. What my Jewish musical upbringing was in Texas, though, was classical reform. Oh, okay. I grew up in a very large reform congregation in Houston, and my Jewish music from my childhood were hymns. English hymns. Straight out of the Union Prayer Book. Straight out of the Union Prayer Book. God is in his holy temple, brings tears to my eyes. Father, hear the prayer we offer. With the organ. Yes, with the organ and the choir in the choir loft that nobody saw, Saw. but these angelic voices (laughs) wafting down. And I had a, a real awakening after I was already in high school the first time I went to the URJ Kutz camp and started to learn some other Jewish music. And when I heard... A particular favorite hymn of mine was, Father, hear the prayer we offer, not for ease that prayer shall be. Now, I went to camp for the first time, and I heard, Eliyahu Hanavi, and I went, someone put Hebrew words to Father, hear the prayer we offer. I had no idea, and for Adon Alam, I knew, the Lord of all who reigned supreme, da-da-da-da. And I, was, I didn't know there were Hebrew words to any of these songs. Huh. My parents said to me, bar mitzvahs for boys, confirmation is for girls. So I didn't become bat mitzvah until I was at Kutz camp and I was 16 years old. But what I think I did learn was an acceptance of all different kinds of music. Growing up in Texas. And growing up at the moment when classical reform was giving way to a newer age, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you had a foot in each camp. Mm-hmm. I, started, I started so playing speak. guitar when I was in middle school, junior high. And so when I got into high school youth group, and we would do youth group services, there wasn't this wealth of contemporary Jewish 
music wow. going on for young composers and this was in the late 60s early 70s um, I knew Debbie Friedman and Debbie Friedman music Kolbe said her music but there wasn't that much else out there so when we would do youth group services we were singing Beatles and Elton right. John mm. fantastic deep powerful songs sure. that sowed the seeds for me to continue looking for musical inspiration religious inspiration from all sources it does seem like there's a generational moment where your peers were also open to that or even yearning for that yearning for for the the variety of influences and the openness to other types of music yes and i think because we were definitely growing up in texas in the minority at that time the jewish even in the large cities like houston or dallas Judaism was still very small fewer Jews in, yeah, yeah. in those cities. We were constantly exposed to so right. much more. Right. And in order to be accepted, we needed right. to be accepting. There was no closing yourself off in a little neighborhood. I graduated from high school. There were 600 and some odd people in my graduating class, and six of us were Jews. Uh-huh. And you all knew each other and went to the same synagogue. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. Uh-huh. And that's right. So the, the picture has definitely changed, but I feel that I've continued to try and be open to a lot of different styles. It's not so much that you're influenced by the musical mm-hmm. tradition of the South, but by the tradition of being a Jew growing up in the South mm-hmm. in the late 60s and early 70s. And hearing other faith music. So when, I, well, hear, well, is, uh, when yeah. I hear a Christian song that can be adapted for Jewish purposes, or it is a song that is completely Psalms, right, right, right. but it came from the Christian community, I have no reticence about using that right. in the synagogue. The words are the same, so right. it right. had a different source. Yeah, It's fine with me. Part of my background, or not part of my background, was the cantorial tradition, because I didn't grow up with a cantor. Oh, you mean you had a choir without a cantor? We had a choir and no cantor. Arturo Sergi came down from the Metropolitan Opera of New York to sing The High Holy Days. Nice. Um, I didn't know that there were words to Kol Nidre. I only heard it, or singing words to Kol Nidre. I only heard cello and organ my entire life. Uh, And so it was a very different kind of culture. Yeah, it's right. It's a very uh, specific (laughs) set of influences. I like it. I know you because you came to the Los Angeles campus as a faculty member and instructor for our students, specifically because on the Los Angeles campus, we don't have a cantorial school. In getting to know you a little bit the first time around, I noticed that you're really committed to what I call getting under the hood of the cantorial craft. The congregants, if they do enjoy the benefits of a seamless, artfully constructed musical service, and they don't look under the hood, they're not going to know why they need a mechanic. (laughs) Or they're not going to know why they need a a cantor who knows all of those mechanisms and those ins and outs of language and melody and rhythm and all of these things that go into shaping that service. And I think it's fair to say, and correct me if you disagree, that the cantorate as a profession in American Judaism has suffered meaning that it's not always evident to congregants, to congregations, to search committees, to communities, why they should invest in a fully ordained cantor who 
who knows those things, who has been trained in what's under the hood. Communal worship is liturgical drama, that it is, in fact, a play mm. going on up there. And you don't want to see, necessarily, the director's hand, the choreographer's hand, while it's going on. Right. It's, it's similar in that right. all of that takes place in advance so that, like you say, it can be seamless when it's going on. Right. When you have a congregation in front of you, Everyone has different tastes. Mm -hmm. Everyone has different things that are going to move them. And what is important about the craft that many people don't realize is that you're really crafting specific moments, I think, that are going to touch different people at different times. Whether it's, sometimes it's exaltation, sometimes it's introspection, sometimes it's this communal singing moment, and if you can have a seamless tapestry, a seamless flow through all of those elements and more, then everyone will walk away having had at least one moment where they felt really at home and really comfortable and probably several more moments where they were touched and maybe even a bit surprised by what was touching them. And it is a craft. Musically, that's easy to put together. But like you say, liturgically, and knowing which moments need to be those high moments and those more mellow moments, which also depends on what's going on in the world today, what's going on in the lives of your people in your congregation, right? The what associations kind of healing is going people on. People have with certain parts of the liturgy that may have nothing to do with the Hebrew. I mean, there's so many layers. Exactly. Who's there to say Kaddish? Right, right. So... For that reason, it's really important for the cantor to be a clergy member in the congregation and a partner of the rabbi, or in some instances, the sole spiritual the soul, director. Right, right. Uh, the cantor needs to be capable of being in relationship with those congregants, of knowing what's going on, of being able to work with the rabbi in order to craft the kind of worship that's going to work for that congregation. Many soloists do a lot of study, but oftentimes, People come in with a whole lot of songs in their repertoire and don't understand how to use the choir. The cantor is also going to learn how to use instrumental music as underscoring right. to, to readings and poetry and going to have enough repertoire in their back pocket that if it's just me and an accompanist or me and my guitar and right. the rabbi and up. the rabbi decides to tell a different right, right. introduction that I can all the same what I had planned has not worked and I need to change it right now and I can. That comes with experience and that comes with education. With education. Much of your success, the success is measured in some way by the degree to which no one knows it's happening. And that has an economic and a social and an organizational effect, which is that when people have to make decisions, they don't know what they're deciding about because you've done it so well that it's not visible to them. Mm -hmm. I'm a big advocate for transparency from the BEMA. Not in each moment to say, here's why yeah, I chose yeah, this, right. although I think sometimes when you're introducing a new melody, the congregation needs to know why that melody at this moment in the sermon. Why did the cantor choose that micha mocha or something along those lines? I think the problem is, is that clergy assume that the congregation knows what it means to pray. 
and that they have some idea what the clergy's vision is of what will happen in a particular service or for the worship vision for the congregation at all. I like to talk a lot about vision. I think that all of the readings and all of the melodies chosen for the prayers, and I am purposefully not calling them songs, they're intentional. Everything is a tool to elicit something from a congregant but the or congregants move someone only experience in a certain that is taste. Uh, they don't experience that as expertise. Yes, but how often do we have conversations with our congregants? And my answer is probably never. Never. As <laughs> uh, a congregant, I'll tell you, yes, never. my two big <laughs> questions. And when I teach, this is something that I, that I really try and amplify now, even more so than I, than I used to, because I'm trying to think of different ways to articulate it, to say, we should all have two big questions. Who do we think we are? And what do we think we're doing here? <laughs> and I think there has to be a lot more conversation about that. We think they know what, it, what we mean when we say pray. But we've never had the conversation. And people who are even, who are coming to service, why, why do you want to go to services Friday night? You could ask a person, well, my third grade is leading Be'a Hafta. It's a friend's bar mitzvah, uh, it's board installation, or something special that there's a good speaker. I can't remember the last time someone said to me, because I need to pray. Most congregants have never been, it's never been suggested to them what they could be doing internally and how what's happening in the room is going to help them go deeper, not just depend upon the people on the bema to give them a show. One of the most impactful teachers in my life is Rabbi Larry Hoffman. He speaks a lot about the liturgical drama, and he speaks, he's not the only one, but he speaks about the Sidur as is the script. Mm-hmm. Yes. The problem is, is that the congregation thinks that they're the audience. The congregation is the cast. Yeah, the, cast the congregation right. is the ensemble. This, in my mind, affects everything. The, the politics of what you're saying are, are tremendous, because if we're the cast the, and we don't really, we haven't rehearsed, we didn't, no, we were the cast. I mean, we... Uh, See, you didn't know, because no one said to you, you're no not an audience but also, member. Another, that's why I'm saying it's a political statement, because in the reform movement, the truth is we do suffer from a certain kind of illiteracy and a certain... Uh, our, our liturgical slash um, worship-based commitments are you know, statistically less intense than, than the conservative or the orthodox movements. They, they show up more for services on average, certainly the orthodox do. That's a, that's a, a powerful thing to admit, <laughs> that we maybe we're not showing up. We're, we're paying a certain price for our relative... Um, I don't know what the word is. You know, in the reform movement, it's distasteful to us to speak about us being more lenient or, or less observant, or because we want to, we want to insist on the space that we're just as religiously Jewish as anyone else. But, but the truth is, we're not as well schooled. I also think about the idea of prayer as practice. So I think it comes from the leadership of being able to have the skills and the knowledge to craft an experience where. People will say, I want more of that. I've been to many, many congregations where the Saturday morning crowd is not the regular congregants, say, but a bunch right. of guests for, for, bar, mitzvah, for bar, mitzvah. bar bar mitzvah. Now they say, welcome, many of you are right. guests. We're so happy you're here for Johnny's Bar Mitzvah. If you open the door, you'll notice there's this on the right page right, and this on the left page yes. for Gates of Prayer. It was, we'll read the regular print, you read the italics kind of situation. 
I'm the rabbi, this is the cantor, please sing along. Right. Instead of saying, no matter what your conception of God is, there will be moments in this morning's service where you will be invited to express that loudly and vocally and joyously, and there will be moments in the service designed for you to be able to be introspective and find that divine place within you. There will be moments when we ask you to sing, not because it's a fun song and you should all just sing, but when we're asking you to sing, it's a tool. It will help our entire community lift our words. I'm obviously passionate about prayer because I think it changes a person inside. So so we're having a conversation, we're lifting up the hood, but we've danced around, I think, uh, my question, which I perhaps didn't ask pointedly oh, enough. No, 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 that's why it's a conversation. Is the cantorial soloist undermining the place of the cantor? Because they're cheaper and because two uh, congregational committees making hiring decisions, they don't readily know the value that the value difference, the value add, as they say, that a cantor brings, which is what we've just been speaking about. We've been talking about only the Bema responsibilities of a cantor, which some of which, if not all of which, possibly can be covered by a really good soloist who the rabbi treats as a partner and mm -hmm. they, you know, they, they mix the recipe together, right, et right, cetera. Right, I think the expectation should still be that the solos would continue to educate themselves uh, in order to be even better at what they do and understand the fabric of the service, the liturgy, etc. They, every soloist I've met, has wanted to do that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> no, I also <laughs> and, have only positive experiences. Right, solos, but right. what makes somebody need a cantor is not just that bema sensibility, but a cantor is a clergy person. A cantor makes hospital visits, a cantor leads Torah study, a mm -hmm. cantor can teach anything in the religious school, not just tutor B'nai Mitzvah, and can teach adult education, not just the musical subjects. The cantor is, is there for life cycle events. The cantor also has all the administrative responsibilities that a rabbi might have. The cantor is a full-time clergy person who has a different specialty than the rabbi and is able to do all of those kinds of clergy tasks and, 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 and duties mm -hmm. that a rabbi performs. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning, including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. There are certain parts of our liturgy that are particularly difficult for lots of people. How do you, as a cantor, deploy music to work with that. We're now going to get into theology, unless you didn't want to get no, into I, the... I, no, it makes uh, sense that theology be one of the sticking points in certain liturgical moments. I think that prayer is filled with symbolism and metaphor. And I think that the music helps to amplify that aspect of the liturgy. That 
It's not about understanding every word mm. in the Hebrew. Right. It is about getting a feeling. My friend and colleague, Benji Ellen Schiller, Cantor Schiller, who teaches at HUC in New York, put out the idea that music comes in four M's, liturgical music. And each M is a theology. Majesty, God in the heavens, meeting, that communal music, the Hine Matov, and everybody can sing along from the first note. Meditative, which is music that makes you go inward and spend some time with yourself. And she also had music of memory. A melody comes from your childhood, you just go hurtling back mm. to that time. Yeah. God, theologies are also is God in the heavens? Is God mm -hmm. in the faces and the voices of everybody in the congregation? Is God in, in the, my divine spark? Uh, is when I do a melody from ages past, do I link myself with Jews past, present, and future? And that also feeds back into the tapestry. But what it helps us do is take the same words and look at them from different perspectives. One very concrete example I can give you, Micha Mocha. So it's this moment of exhilaration when we're crossing the Red Sea, and most of the melodies written for it that are going to convey that are going to be upbeat, right. joyous, right, right. etc. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And I have a great deal of admiration. He's one of my closest friends is Dan Nichols. Dan was asked to write a setting of Michamocha that would go with the Midrash about the, the angels the wanting to rejoice, and God says to the angels, they can rejoice, they got redeemed. You, not so much, because those are also my children are they dying. Not my children? And Dan, in the last couple of years, wrote a setting to Michamocha that when you want to say God is awesome or awful, that awe can also be terrifying and serious. He wrote a first version of this Michamocha immediately after 9 11. Hmm. If you have an overall view of God, good, bad, ugly, right. etc., truly, it's not person. always going to be yippee skippy for God. Right. Sometimes it's, oh my God, what on earth is going on here? And sometimes that Michamocha, that I don't get it. Who is like you? What is. What's going on here? People are dying, and yeah, we're singing Michamocha. Yeah, why does my redemption come at the expense of other? Or... And music can portray that. Can I tell you my favorite example? Please. My favorite example of that is the phrase. I think it's from Proverbs. Hazorim bedima berina yiktsaru. Those who sow in um, tears mm -hmm. will reap what they sow uh, in joyousness. And there are two halves to that verse. There's two, two melodies that are widely known. One is Debbie Friedman's, mm -hmm. which you're going to hum for me now, so I don't sure. insult anybody. Those who sow, who sow in tears, will reap, will reap in joy. That's right, so that's, a, that's a kind of nostalgic, uh, but it does seem to draw on the first half of the verse. The, the, there's, a, there's a melancholy there. Mm -hmm. those who sow in tears. But the melody that we sing in the Birkat Amazon is rousing. It's, uh, 
And Debbie also wrote a Shir Hamalot. That that ver that those exact lines go. I didn't even know she wrote that because no one ever sings that in my presence. Right, right. Um, but it, it illustrates your point that the music can take you in one direction or another. The verse is the same in it both should. cases. It should. It should. And I think that liturgical composers. When they know they're composing liturgy, they're not just—they're right, not right, right, composing. Right. Let's go to the grocery right, store. They're not knocking it out. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Hopefully, they do some study and, and they come at it with their own perspective. If they're good, this big catchphrase for cantors is accessibility. Mm-hmm, we want right. you to do music that's more People accessible. Can, can, yeah. Now, then we go back to the who's the cast and who's the audience mm-hmm. to say, well, accessible to who and accessible in what way isn't anything that we really want to do well worth working for and require some work. I'm happy to sing accessible music and I'm happy when congregants pray along (laughs) musically. But that doesn't mean that everything has to be immediately accessible the first time because then it runs a terrible risk of being simplistic and getting boring really really fast. So you're, you're embracing the, the challenge of the challenging parts. We are expressing our utmost praise, our utmost fears, our challenges in life. We are Yisrael, which I think will always be future tense. You will mm-hmm. struggle with God. That's being true to your name. Let's not be limited by what we can express in 30 seconds. Part two of that for me is that grand music is something that I can't do by myself the choral music or the very majestic music that doesn't quite fit my voice so well. And if I want to praise God or express joy or express sorrow, I'm so grateful that someone else can do it better than me (laughs) and take those words to a place that I can't take them. And someone might say, well, you weren't participating. I wasn't singing. Right, right. But don't dare tell me I wasn't praying or I wasn't participating. That gets us to this, it's back to the vocabulary. What does it mean to participate? In communal worship, I don't think participation has to be vocal. When you ask people to describe their most spiritual moments outside of synagogue, musically, you will get the symphony or a Broadway show Mm -hmm. or something like that where it's it's surround sound and the music is just washing over you and you are transported. Now nobody sings along with the symphony. Mm-hmm. What you're telling me is that your most spiritual moments musically may be those in which you are fully participating, you are fully present. You're not singing, your mouth's not moving. Right. But when you come to synagogue and the cantor or the choir tries to provide such a moment for you, this is really my speaking my truth here, and I think that we all know that it is true. People are very quick to jump to. The cantor must be on some sort of ego trip. They just like to listen to themselves sing. That's why they're doing the melody that I can't sing along, so that, mm. that we, I have to listen to them. Mm. I don't understand that. I don't understand that lack of trust in your clergy person that that you should be able to say or even think about it at all like that moment of I can be fully present and be participating with my whole being 
and yet not vocally. Th- and in like a symphony, it's... I think it's understandable if we take you seriously when you say that people have to learn how to pray. If we take you seriously at your point, then you would naturally conclude that they don't understand what's going on. And so it does, it is understandable. It may be lamentable, and it may, it may reveal a fissure between our reform sense of self in theory and our reform way we act in, in the prayerful context in reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that that fissure ought to be attended to, but first it has to get acknowledged. Yes. And the, I, the, I was hoping you would go right there. First we, you know, first we have to admit that it exists, and then we can work on, right, on closing right. and that I th- gap. And I, th- I think we're a little bit defensive about that as a movement, about the fissure between what we think we are prayerfully speaking and what we actually are prayerfully speaking. No matter who's in front of me or on any given day with any given congregation, my only reason for being up there is to help them pray. Jews have varying degrees of being comfortable in their own skin on many levels. And certainly, I think we the, all do. Yeah, well, one <laughs> hopes that hey, there's always a little bit of discomfort, but not too much. And liturgically speaking, Hebrew is a huge hurdle for many, many Jews. And even when it's not a hurdle because they know how to decode the words or they know how to, they've got enough of it memorized, there's a built in foreignness. And there's a paradox of being foreign in your own tradition, and there's all kinds of layers. I think music, when you do the M of memory, it can cushion the foreignness because it dupes you into thinking that it's not foreign. You've got this memory, it's, an, it's, it's, it's genuinely your memory, and that's not a foreign thing. Right, so I think dupes you into is a bit of a negative turn when that's not such yeah, a negative. Yeah, I meant to, I'm just, yeah, yeah, I'm being rhetorical here. I, <laughs> okay. I, I just mean that, that, that it might mislead you into thinking that, that it's less foreign than it really is. Because if you were to, for example, the Kaddish, I mean, everybody's going to resonate. I mean, many, many more people will resonate with that than who actually have a clue about what the Kaddish actually is beyond just being a memorial prayer or or something they recognize. Mm -hmm. And that muscle memory, if your muscle is your ear, is duping you. It's making you think you understand something. Now, on some level, you do understand. And who am I to tell you what your understanding is? I don't mean to go at that that psychological Mm -hmm. level. I'm just saying that if you really read and understood the Kaddish, you probably would never pray it again. And, and, and music, that particular melody right there, will paper over, and I guess I do mean dupe, it, 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 will, it, will, it will paper over the foreignness by transporting you to familiar, familiarity. And that familiarity actually is a diversion from the foreignness that if you really want to understand the prayer of that prayer, it is the acute foreignness that will actually take you there, and you have to struggle with it and work it out and, and reject it, accept it, or change it, or whatever. Interpret it. Right, but it's the music that's keeping you from doing that because the music is so familiar, and it, it, it touches exactly the chord of mournfulness that you have associated from childhood when, you're, when you were being hardwired, that to go back and to really do the examination and connection to the prayer is going to be so hard, so out of the way, that, that very few people do it. I think the Kaddish may not be the best example, only because the melody... Is not for the mourner's Kaddish. Correct. Thank I you. know. That's my point. Oh, okay. That, that's my point. Well, I said before that I don't think the Bema should be a classroom. Right. I think the classroom should be... You know, there's a lot to be learned about the liturgy. I'm certainly an advocate of that. But there are easy ways of opening small doors along the way. Okay. To say, you know, 
Kaddish here, Kaddish here, Kaddish here throughout the service. There are right, a lot right, of different right. moments different that are transitional, right. reminding us of our task. Uh, right. Abraham Joshua Heschel would say it's all about God. And, and at each of those transition points, this is reminding us that one, what we're really doing here has something to do with God. And two, that phrase within the Kaddish itself that says, that's my favorite sentence, maybe in the entire right. Sidur, that everything is beyond, it's we're, beyond we're dreaming the impossible to, dream. Right, right. Now we're going to turn to page 263 and keep trying. Mm-hmm. That's the way, that's right, how right, I explain right. Kaddish. But it goes back to what do we mean when we say understand? If this is poetry and metaphor, if the liturgy is not necessarily meant to be taken literally, then what does it mean to understand it? For me, in terms of difficulty, and if you want to throw up the Hebrew as a stumbling block, I'd start with Baruch Atah Adonai. If I'm having trouble with God, if I think I'm an atheist, if I am challenged, etc., what's with all the... The blessed, bar, blessed, the blessed, blessed are you, <laughs> blessed art thou, blessed art thou, blessed art thou. I have a problem with thou. I have a problem with, with being separate from mm. God, with, with IU. That's just my personal theology. So as a cantor, with all the singing of Baruch Adonai, in my head, I'm not translating it literally. I am using the music as midrash so that the Hebrew were, and, and, the, and I'm drashing on it in my heart. I know what I mean when I say Baruch Atah Adonai, and I'm not, I don't feel compelled to change the words. But the, the music is a facilitator there for you to, to, to express or find your own meaning. But I'm trying to get at the more baseline, maybe not literal specifically, but more textually anchored meaning mm-hmm. and that is more foreign yes and and what you're 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 actually you appear to be agreeing with me saying that it the, the music is evocative of your midrash on the on the prayer rather than the the prayer itself which has its own baseline meaning mm-hmm. even if we don't take it literally and it's not what i'm thinking when the music eases me into what i want to think like i say they're going to be things that someone on the bimo will choose for you during the course of her service that won't work for you nah. and there hopefully there will be moments that will. I guess what it's I'm saying very, is it only works when it doesn't work. It only works when it doesn't work. Otherwise it's not working or I'm not working. Well you also don't have to be totally dependent upon what's coming from the bima because you have this wealth of of yeah, okay, especially in modern of words in your literally Certainly in your hand, Mishkan Tefillah, that's uh, why the other. left-hand side of the page is right. there. But also now, so many contemporary composers are putting the English, and I don't mean the, the literal English translation from the right side necessarily, uh, putting the English to music, more and more tools that we use are opening with the Hebrew line, reading a poem yeah, in between, yeah, right, closing right, right. with the Khatima. I'll give you one example that's a favorite of mine. Uh, Yotzer Or, it's a prayer comes right after Barhu in the morning service, speaks about the formation of light, thanks God for the, the lights of day, etc. A beautiful melody that we do a lot in the reform movement is a simple four-part round of the first line of that prayer. And then for the music to keep going, my favorite English right there is the E.E. E. Cummings poem, I Thank You, God, for Most This Amazing Day. 
for the leaping green leaf spirits of trees. I've got it memorized, a blue true dream of sky, everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. And it closes with, how should tasting, touching, breathing, seeing any lifted from the know of all no thing, human merely being, doubt unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake, now the eyes of my eyes are opened. Now I want to say, Baruch Atadonai Yotzer HaMa'orot. I am so grateful there is light in the world. That brings it home for me, and composers are doing the same yeah. thing. Uh, Noah Aronson has an entire CD called The Left Side of the Page. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, it, and it is. That's he nice. wrote settings for so many of the, of the poems and the readings that are on the left side. And it's very popular because congregants... You know, God is going to understand you, hopefully, depending upon what you... We're, we're counting on that. Right. There's a, there's a, there's a secular composer, uh, he's not Jewish at all, but a, pop, a folk composer, David Wilcox, who has a song. The title is God Knows Your Native Tongue. And that's pretty much it. I'm not recommending we use less Hebrew. I think I love Hebrew, and I love going really beneath the surface of, surface of every word because I think there's so much richness there. But again, I have to think of who am I standing in front of, and I don't want there to be stumbling blocks. So as a cantor, and this is something that a soloist may or may not know how to do, and even as a cantor, you have to work really hard of how am I going to keep you just comfortable enough while pushing you a little bit deeper. Right, and I guess that's where I'm going. So, all right, we agree then. I want to thank you so much for coming. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Love, obviously love talking uh, <laughs> Good, good. We wouldn't want to interview someone who didn't love talking. <laughs> You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.